number of passages this evening, uh, particularly Ephesians 2 and then Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and then while you're turning to Ephesians 2, I'd also uh, invite you to open up your hymnal and turn with me to page 846 uh, as we look at the Nicene Creed. As you uh, recall, uh, over the past few months, we have been looking at what the Scripture says concerning the doctrine of the church Uh, As you recall, we began by simply looking at what Scripture says uh, with respect to the church and its relationship to the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God visibly manifested on earth is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that point forward, we began looking at the various metaphors and aspects that Scripture uses to describe Christ's kingdom on earth, Uh, that uh, Christ describes his church as a great vineyard his people as an army, his church as a household and a priesthood. All of these metaphors being important, Christ himself being the great bridegroom to the church being his bride, all of these metaphors are significant and important. And uh, we also considered those identifying marks that distinguish a true church from a false church. We looked at that just a few weeks ago, I guess two weeks weeks ago, uh, that the very thing that distinguishes a true church from a false church is the preaching of the Word, the faithful preaching of the Word, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and, of course, uh, the exercise of church discipline. But now as we've kind of collected all this material and what the Bible says about the church, and I hope you realize that now the Bible actually does say a lot more about the church than many of us often take for granted We want to kind of uh, see how uh, these passages arise in uh, what we might call a confessionalized format, Uh, that as the church has taken the doctrine of the church, as it arises from Scripture and has put it into uh, a confession of faith, that we start to realize and understand more deeply these confessional aspects of uh, the nature of the church. So this evening, we're going to simply consider the attributes of the church. As the Nicene Creed puts it, one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. What does it mean to be the church? What uh, characteristics does uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, display? And so with that in mind, I'm going to begin by reading Ephesians chapter 2, and then we're going to look at the Nicene Creed Uh, and go from there. But I want you to notice this. Uh, That phrase there in the Nicene Creed, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, four distinct adjectives. We'll see those very things pop up here in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. This is Paul writing under inspiration of the Spirit. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's a relevant verse for what we've prayed just a few moments ago. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both, speaking of Jew and Gentile, one. Notice that. 
one holy Catholic and apostolic Jesus made us one church and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and, pre- and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's a universal aspect to our, at, to our uh, entrance uh, into the heavenly courtroom. That word for universal there is Catholic. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians really concerns the nature of the church and Christ being Lord of the church. I want to look now at the Nicene Creed. Um, we haven't uh, confessed our faith together using this creed for uh, uh, at least several weeks, so let's just take a few moments to recite this creed together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. One of the reasons that the Nicene Creed was written was, of course, to affirm a robust Trinitarian orthodoxy, to remind us that we worship one God who subsists in three persons. We don't worship three different gods. We don't worship a three-headed monster. We worship one God, the maker of heaven and earth, and yet that one God subsists in three persons. This is a doctrine that the church confesses and affirms even though it defies comprehension. 
And yet one of the things that we see and one of the uh, attestations that we find in Scripture uh, is that though uh, the work of God is all one. It's not as if God the Father is off doing one thing over here and the Son doing something here and the Spirit something over here. What we do find is that there is a particular emphasis given to uh, these works of creation and redemption as the, the kind of the terminus point Uh, The accent mark, if you will, falls upon one of the three persons. And so even uh, as you see the structure here to the Nicene Creed, you see that there's a threefold structure here. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And whereas the creation is attributed to God, and again, not apart from the Son, it is by the Word of God that all things were made. It is by the Spirit and breath of God that the worlds are called into existence. And yet we say that it is one God, you know, the Father Almighty who makes heaven and earth. It is the Son who becomes incarnate. It is not the Spirit or the Father who become incarnate. And yet I want you to notice um, the, the little subset that transpires underneath that simple phrase, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice that. What we see here is our doctrine of the church is placed under the work of the Spirit. Should really give shape to our understanding of the nature of the church. The, son, the Father creates, the Son redeems, and the Spirit sanctifies. The Spirit uh, is a product of, or the church is a product of the Spirit. What is it that happens in Acts chapter 2? Christ descends on high, and he pours out his Spirit on his church in the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel chapter 2. And as this uh, third portion of the Nicene Creed is a rather dense thing, and we're not, the goal tonight is not to look at the Nicene Creed itself, but I really want to draw your attention that the focus is on the Spirit in this third section. The focus here, you know, being on the person of the Spirit with respect to his procession and his divinity. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is also the Lord and giver of life. It deals with the work of the Spirit in terms of the inspiration of Scripture. He who spoke by the prophets, it deals with the nature of the church, that the church is baptized in the Spirit, that the church is justified by the Spirit with respect to the forgiveness of sins, and the church, we all will be raised by the Spirit on the last day. What we see here is that even the Nicene Creed gives a robust theology of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Spirit does not begin with uh, the Azusa Street revivals in the 20th century. This is something that's embedded in the historic creeds of our church, but I want to focus on that one phrase here, is the church being the product of the Spirit with respect to this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It's kind of a lengthy introduction to make this rather simple point. The church is the work of the Spirit. It's the very thing that we've seen as we've been making our way through uh, Paul's letter, uh, second letter to the church of Corinth, that the Spirit under the new covenant, begins to work in the hearts of many. He regenerates us. He effectually calls us. He draws us to put our hope in Christ that we might be justified, sanctified, redeemed. It is the Spirit who is the bonding agent that bonds the person, the believer, to Christ. And the good news is that we are not... um, bound as individuals simply to Christ, right? One one of the things, the truths that we confess, especially as we've been thinking about the doctrine of the church, 
is that uh, Christianity is not just a me-and-my-Bible kind of religion. This is not just a, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to go out into the woods and, and read my Bible on a Sunday morning, and I don't need anybody else. We read a, a few weeks ago 1 John chapter 1, and, and John says, our goal is to proclaim Christ to you so that you're, so you might join in fellowship with us because truly our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And so through faith in Christ, we are bound to one another into a corporate community. But what does that community look like? What traits does that exhibit? Are we simply kind of a ragtag bunch of people who happen to worship the same God? Or is there something else going on through the Spirit's work in our hearts that makes us exhibit particular qualities? You know, if you were to pick uh, a particular uh, uh, you know, if somebody wants to join uh, the Boy Scouts, you know, for instance. Uh, very different uh, personalities, very different kind of moral backgrounds for each and every individual who comes. And yet, for the church, we all come as sinners, but we all come as sinners sanctified by Christ, and the Spirit shapes us to look like Christ. So there is a certain identity-shaping feature to the church. And those attributes help us understand what the church is called to be and how we are called to live. And so I'd like to take this time, we, we might not get through all four attributes this evening, if so, that's fine, we'll, we'll come back to this again. But I want us to look at these four key phrases. What do we mean when we say that the church is one, that the church is holy, that the church is Catholic, and that the church is apostolic? And hopefully by the end of this, you'll see that what, uh, uh, what the Reformed Church believes concerning the church is not something new. It's not something intended to be divisive, but this is something that's bound up in our own creeds and confessions. Not simply the Westminster Confession, but also our historic confessions going back a millennia plus. So the first thing we want to consider is what do we mean by the church is one? W. No, not W. O-N-E. Church also one, but well, you know. That deals with the church militant and the church triumphant. What do we mean by the church is O-N-E? With that, turn me to Ephesians chapter 4. One of the things I want you to notice is uh, there, there's a certain grammar to Paul's language when he speaks of the gospel. It's, uh, it's some, I really love how Sinclair Ferguson uh, puts it like that. There's a grammar to the gospel. Two facets, what we call the indicative and the imperative. Uh, so often in Paul's letters, Paul will state uh, some type of de- declaratory sen- sentence of what Christ has done on our behalf. And now we are called to live in light of that great indicative. There are imperatives that we live. Sometimes Paul put the imperative first, but it's always grounded in the indicative. And that's what we see here in these uh, first six verse- verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Again, as Paul is talking about the nature of the church, and he speaks of the oneness, the unity of the church. Paul speaks here, uh, Therefore I, uh, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let me ask you that, which is that? Is that the indicative or is that the imperative? Not your question, by the way. It's an imperative. I urge you to walk in this manner. Humility, gentleness, 
I've lost my place. There we go. Patience, bearing with one another in love, bearing uh, and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Why? Verse four. We give the great. We're given the great indicative. Why? Because there is one body. There is one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Apparently one is a big deal in Paul's mind here in these verses. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I want you to notice that, how this one is being set in opposition to all these other things. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And it's because of this oneness that Paul calls us to strive to preserve that unity. What, what I think is so fascinating about this particular passage is Paul does not say, hey, because you're a bunch of Christians, you need to, you need to band together and get over yourselves. Be true enough as, you know, insofar as it goes. But notice the language that Paul gives here in verse 3, that we might be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What's the implication there? It means we are already one. There is already a unity because we have been baptized into one body by one spirit, by the one God, on account of the one Lord. There is a oneness here, and so we must be zealous to maintain that unity. There's an eagerness there. Not to let any other thing get in front of us that would try to divide what has already taken place. It's what we saw in Ephesians 2. It's why I began by reading that, that in Christ the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. Paul will spell out how that hostility manifests itself in the world in Galatians chapter 3. This is Galatians 3.28. I have it uh, here on uh, the handout. Uh, when Paul says this, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, dealing with ethnic distinctions, there is neither slave nor free, dealing with economic distinctions or social distinctions, there is neither male nor female, gender distinctions, for you are all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that, that those distinctions, it's not that you cease to be Jew or Gentile or male or female, he's not arguing for this kind of androgynous kind of collection of people. It's that because of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been all granted the same access to our God and Father. Owen Searcy has the exact same access that I have to the Lord Jesus Christ. Gary has the same access that I have. Jones, Emma, Angie, Thasia, James. We all have, all of us, Sharon, we all have the same access. It's not like, you know, because I happen to be a pastor, I can make it, you know, like 10 feet further than you can. That I, I'm kind of given kind of a, like an identity, you know, card where I can make it like just the next level in. That's one of the things that you see in, uh, in, in the temple structure under the old covenant. You have the, the, the court of the Gentiles, but then you have uh, the court for, for Israelites, and then you have uh, um, the, the place that only the priest could enter, and then only the one high priest you can enter just one day once a year. There, is a, there are these walls of separation that, that kind of funnels in, narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. 
And yet the great news that we find in the, uh, the book of Hebrews is that now on account of the work of Christ, all those walls have been shattered, and now the way has been opened up so that we all might be able to draw near with boldness and confidence before the throne of grace. We now have the same access every single day as believers under the new covenant that the high priests under the old covenant could only get one day once a year. It's a great access that we have in Christ. And because of that, we have been bound together as one body and we are called to partake of that benefit together. And so that these various distinctions that try to divide us as we see throughout the world, be it ethnic distinctions, economic distinctions, or distinctions of gender, are of no value when it comes to access before the throne of grace. It's not that you cease to be myself, just a Florida cracker. It's that it doesn't give me any privileged status or deprivileged status on entering the throne of grace. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 12, for just as the one body is one and has many members and all the members of the body. So Paul has recognized there's one body yet a variety of distinctions. And yet there are many parts of the body, that body is still one. So it is with Christ, for in one spirit we have been baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. And so Paul says here in Ephesians 4, be eager to preserve that unity, that oneness which has already been secured for you through the work of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit. So the question we have before us is, what prevents, what hinders our unity? I think there are two main features that hinder our unity with one another. The first is that of sin. Think of what Jesus says with respect to sin. Jesus is very clear that when you sin against another, there is a division that takes place. There is the need for reconciliation. That's why Jesus is so emphatic about the command to forgive and to make amends. We've talked about this before. Jesus himself does not simply say, hey, you know, when you come to bring your offering, uh, uh, you know, uh, at church on, you know, them on the Sabbath, now uh, on the Lord's Day, and you remember that you have something against somebody else, go and make it right. That's not what Jesus says. True as that may be. What Jesus says is when you go to present your offering and then you realize and you remember that somebody has something against you, you're to go and make it right. So that right there is a vivid picture of what it means to be eager to overcome that hostility. There is a proactive nature to reconciliation. The Lord, our Lord himself says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. One of the exhibiting characteristics that we have as believers is that we must strive to overcome that hostility that erupts between member and member, between believer and believer, to do everything we can to try to effect reconciliation, hoping that that reconciliation will happen, praying to that end. I think it's so relevant because we live in an age of of, of radical toxicity. 
And I think here's a place where the church is called to stand out. Where everybody's you know, ready to call out somebody on you know, a, a random tweet that you issued 13 years ago and try to get you fired from your job. Here's a much different approach that Scripture uh, lays out. It's not simply a, a, a form of sloppy agape. Yeah, just don't worry about it. It's no big deal. No, there, there's a real reckoning with sin. But the, the deal of reckoning with sin, as we saw when we looked at one of the distinguishing marks of the church the other week with discipline, the goal is reconciliation, not vindictiveness. Yes, we're called to deal with sin, but in a loving way, in hopes that the sinner would be restored, in hopes that that breach would be healed. There is a call in our uh, uh, in, in Paul's uh, exhortation to the church to be eager to maintain that unity of the Spirit. Uh, there is a call that we as the church must uh, answer with respect to a courageous love for sinners. Being willing to take it on the chin. To be willing to take the hits repeatedly and trying to overcome uh, that hostility that erupts between neighbor and neighbor. So that's one of the, the roadblocks that we have uh, to the unity of the church. One of the things that, that threatens the unity of the church is the reality of sin. But the second uh, roadblock that I think we face is that of false teaching. Joe Beakey puts it like this. I think this is really helpful. It is not doctrines that divide. It is false doctrines that divide. That is the point that Paul himself will make in Acts chapter 20 when he warns. This is Acts 20 verses 28 to 30. Listen to this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's speaking to the elders of the church to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. What is it that is uh, uh, threatening the unity of the flock? There it is false teaching. False teaching. It's not true doctrine that divides. It is false doctrine that divides. We see here, uh, 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 even in Ephesians 4, that what we have is not uh, multiple faiths. We have been baptized into one faith by the unity of the Spirit. So this unity of which Scripture teaches is not kind of a happy, clappy ecumenicity. What we are calling for is a unity on the basis of truth. Looking towards a, a real unity. So sin and false teaching are the two roadblocks that we have. They're the two real struggles that we face, not just as a congregation, but as the church worldwide, in maintaining that unity that the Spirit has given to the church. We see that the truth unites, but we also find that the truth also sanctifies. What is it that Christ himself says? John chapter 17 Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So what, we're, what we are bound together with is in a common confession. 
And we must be zealous to protect that confession, but we also uh, should seek uh, to overcome uh, these uh, divisions. Now, of course, it raises that particular question, and, and I wish I had more time to get into this. What of, what of denominations? You know, uh, it, it's very easy to kind of uh, clamor against particular denominations and go, aha, that's proof that there is no, uh, you know, that, that denominations are bad, uh, therefore we need to get rid of them altogether and just have one, you know, super giant megachurch. Um, so it, it's a nice idea. But we still have that practical uh, issue that we have to recognize, that we have to deal with. What does it mean to be united under the same banner of truth? What does it be, to mean to be united under the, the banner of a common confession? doesn't mean that the whole, we're expecting the whole church to be united under the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's not the point. One of the things we have to recognize um, uh, uh, in our, in our own denomination, we have various degrees. We, there is a, a, a particular striving towards ecumenicity that we have in our denomination with other denominations. Our goal is not to become you know, more radically and radically separated from every other denomination till we're reduced to a congregation you know, of just four people where we declare everybody else to be apostate. That is not the point. We actually have a committee both at the presbytery level and at the denominational level, if I can say denominational, uh, a committee on ecumenicity. I want you to think about this. What is our primary standard? Not a trick question. The Bible. There we go. Yeah, we, we, when I'm asking a question like this in the evening, this is more kind of give and take. It is, it is the Bible. It is not the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is not the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We are bound by a common confession in believing what the Bible says. And so there is a certain degree into, with which we can relate with other churches who have a different confession of faith than ours. Reformed Baptists, for instance, believe the Bible. And so there are certain efforts that we, and causes that we can join together with. There are Lutherans we can join together with on various causes. But that's not the only... We have to think of ecumenicity according to multiple tiers. What are our secondary standards? Westminster standards, Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is where we go, okay, well, we believe the Bible, and so there are certain things that we can do together, which also means there are certain things that we can't walk arm-in-arm together with. You know, we cannot walk arm in arm uh, with with the local mosque down the street on uh, on many issues. But there are also many liberal churches that we couldn't because there is a disbelief in the authority of Scripture. But when it comes to that kind of second tier of our secondary standards, it shows that we can have uh, can I can I put it like this greater unity if you know what I mean. With other churches, with, with other churches in our denomination, even other churches outside of our denomination, the PCA holds to the same secondary standards. So we could say, oh, well, you guys also believe the same thing that we believe about baptism. So, for instance, when it comes time to transfer from an OP church to another OP church, it becomes a little bit easier because we recognize that we believe not just broad features like what the Bible says, but also the particularities of our confession concerning the person and work of Christ as well as the nature of church government. Um, Doesn't mean that we've 
called any, all the other churches apostate because why? We also have fraternal relations with our, let's say, the RP or uh, uh, the URC, the United Reformed Churches in North America, where their confessional standards are not the Westminster standards, but uh, the three forms of unity. Another reformed set of documents uh, that are, are, are not that are reflective of, you know, not uh, England in the 17th century, uh, but the continent of Europe in the 16th. Believe many of the same things, but have a different confession of faith. The ordering uh, is slightly different. The relationship, let's say, between elders and deacons. Not insurmountable obstacles, but they at least recognize that there are certain things that are differences, but we can actually uh, come together in a common cause. So, for instance, what is it that the URC and the OPC have done together? Put together a new Psalter hymnal. 20-year project in the making. That's a big thing. What is it that the OPC and the PCA have done for years? We have great, commissions, great commission uh, uh, publications. Sunday school curriculum. See, there are ways where, in which our denomination works with other churches to varying degrees. So just because we're part of a denomination does not mean that we have denied the unity of the church. We are striving to overcome those things in a variety of ways. I know that kind of uh, sounds like something of a rant. It kind of is. But it's something I think we should recognize. Um, that that uh, the, the response to overcoming unity is not simply to pretend like differences don't exist. Rather, it's to recognize that there are differences and to try to convince one another either uh, that the other person is wrong and we are right or to try to figure out ways in which we can work together despite our differences, let's say, of, uh, of a form of government uh, or the way in which a presbytery operates or things like that. Does that make sense? I know I'm kind of, I kind of went off my notes a little bit. I went down a rabbit trail. But when we talk about the, the unity of the church, what we need to be doing is thinking through real practical ways of how do we maintain the unity here among the members of the congregation, but we also need to think outside the four walls. And what ways can we exemplify that unity with other churches? And that happens in a variety of ways according to our three different levels, three different uh, standards. Our, our tertiary standards, of course, being, uh, I misplaced it, the Book of Church Order, uh, which distinguishes us a little bit from let's say the PCA and some other reformed denominations. I just realized it's now six o'clock and I'd only made it one, one quarter of the way through my, my lesson. So I tell you what, <laughs> I just hit the brakes real hard. Uh, I figure what we'll do is we'll stop tonight and then next time we'll, we'll look at the holiness of the church. Let's, we'll take our time with this. But again, I want you to think through what does it mean by the church as one? And I'd really encourage you this week to really reflect on Ephesians chapter four where Paul uses that term one over and over and over again and think through what can we do as a congregation uh, to maintain that unity within the congregation some very real ways we need to think through that but also um, between this church and other churches even here in the valley who have similar albeit different confessions of faith let's pray our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the unity you've granted your church by the Spirit. Uh, we ask that you'd bless our time this evening uh, and that you would minister to us and bring us back safely next week as we strive to worship you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.